everyone. Welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for listening today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. A topic that we explore regularly on the podcast is attachment theory, which is a great framework for understanding how people relate to each other. Because whether we're aware of it or not, our attachment patterns shape our ability to trust other people, give and receive love, and ultimately find fulfillment in our relationships. Today we're going to be focusing on one of the most common and most important questions that we get about attachment. Can we heal our old attachment wounds and become more securely attached over time? To help us learn how to do that, I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist, he's a best-selling author, and he's also my dad. So dad, how are you doing today? I'm appreciating the qualities in you, Forrest, that uh, can tolerate and accept my mistakes. <laughs> I made a mistake on a recording just before doing this one. And that's one of the things that helps us to be securely attached to others who, you know, are not too horrible when we mess up. <laughs> I just want to thank you for letting me be attached to you. Oh, uh, well, that's that's very sweet, Dad. Yeah, we had a little recording snafu for a previous episode. There was no gonna... we about it. It was an <laughs> I. It was me. It's, you know, there are a lot of buttons to push, and sometimes you just don't push all the buttons, and that's the <laughs> way it goes. I've, I've lived that life. I mean, we've only lost, I think, one recording ever. And you're right, good good opportunity to display a little secure attachment, to not punish you too harshly for your understandable mistake, and, you know, to be accommodating and to show love, even so. So, okay, so what what's your theory about how to repair and how to maintain secure attachment relationships if you've grown up with insecure attachment? Well, tables turned, baby. Just jumping into the middle of the episode at the very beginning of it. And I think a big part of what we're going to be talking about in this that I'm going to kick to you a little bit more later as our resident actual psychologist. Uh, but I suppose one of the things that I bumped into in like my reading about the topic and things like that is that a lot of this comes down to reparative emotional experiences, which is one mm. of the things people talk about a lot. People are imperfect. We don't get things in our early experiences that we wish that we had gotten. There's unfortunately not a lot that we can do about that. Children don't have a lot of agency in their lives. And there are people also who just pop out a little bit more avoidant, a little bit more anxious by nature. I think that I had a pretty secure attachment relationship with you and mom, and nonetheless, I think I'm a little anxious by nature. Hmm. And we need to come to terms with that, and the way that we typically come to terms with it is by having examples in our experience that are antidote examples to that, where we have the opportunity to feel securely attached to another person. I go through the experiences in my life where a friend really comes through for me. And then I deliberately go out of my way to, as you've written about over and over again, to take it in and to allow it to be reparative for me. And it's a two-step process. You have to have the experiences, and then you also have to allow the experiences to be reparative. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a huge crux of a lot of what we're going to be talking about today. That's a fantastic summary for us. We grow up and we develop these models of relationships that people call attachment systems. And hopefully we grow up in an environment where parents are available and responsive and sensitive and, you know, appropriately guiding when necessary, but it's not horrible. And there's a context in which a child can increasingly feel secure, right, rather than insecure. And then, of course, we have other childhoods in which parents are, whatever, preoccupied, emotionally unavailable. Maybe they're dealing with some kind of depression or physical health issue or issue with their partner, or they're just, frankly, kind of mean. And in those contexts, as you know, many kids, like myself, developed what could be called a more insecure attachment style in which they don't feel so secure and they manage it typically in one of two major ways. Either they manage the insecure environment by making their needs very minimal and avoiding asking for much at all from their caregivers, or they go the other way and they become more demanding, more insistent, more reproachful, more beseeching in a kind of a more anxious sort of way. Then the, there's a third not so common form of insecure attachment in which people are more disorganized or it's sort of a combination of those two. And then what do we do? Then what do we do? 
when we come into adulthood, right? So based on that primer, I wanted to add something to what you said. In addition to internalizing corrective emotional experiences is forming a coherent narrative, a coherent account in which you really name what was good and what was not so good about your childhood. You have a sense of proportion about it, kind of a larger understanding in a context in which you're really kind to yourself. You're not downplaying what was difficult in your childhood while also having a kind of perspective about it. Those two together, the formation of a coherent narrative and the internalization of many, 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 many corrective emotional experiences, then can enable a person to be someone who, as an adult, feels less wounded or burdened by all that happened Mm -hmm. and is also more able to be a person that other people today can form secure relationships with. Yeah, that's a great summary. And We're going to be doing this episode with the basic assumption that you, the listener, have a general sense of what attachment theory is, in part because we've talked about it a whole bunch on the podcast in the past. To just hit a couple of the important points, if you happen to be a little bit less familiar, there are, like Rick said, kind of three different insecure styles, anxious, avoidant, fearful. Anxious is more of a fear of distance. Avoidant is more of a fear of closeness. And then fearful is kind of a combination of both. It's a general view that the world is scary and people are unreliable. And these attachment styles come from some combination of nature and nurture. It's kind of fuzzy and murky. They're often dictated by nurture, but it appears that there is some kind of nature component, at least loosely associated with it. But the key point in all of this is that as we get to adulthood, we're still carrying around those early patterns of behavior. They essentially set the script for our future relationships. And over time, as uh, attachment theory has become popularized and you've got podcasts like ours doing episodes on attachment theory, you've seen this kind of expanding out of it to be not just about primary caretaker relationships, but all kinds of different relationships with all kinds of different authority figures. So, Dad, to ask a pretty important question here, do you think people can actually change their attachment style? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) With a long pause and some caveats associated with it, I'm guessing. Yeah. So I'm really quite familiar with the attachment literature. And then having been familiar with it, I find myself kind of stepping back from it. The answer is definitely yes. Now, to get to that yes, typically there's a combination of self-understanding, effort, some guidance sometimes, if only in reading a book or listening to a podcast, as well as potentially a therapist. But the answer is definitely a yes. And I think that that yes has four components to it, any one of which are good and all four are even better. One component of the yes is a comfort with and a full capacity to enter into the depths of vulnerable intimacy as appropriate with other people. Second component of the yes is the capacity in relationships to be really yourself. Mm. Differentiated, individuated, authentically self-expressed, really being you fully and fearlessly. Not as a jerk, not as a pompous bully, but fully and fearlessly. That's a second component. A third element of the yes is becoming someone that other people can securely attach to in that you can unlearn and become free of the internalization of how others treated you, which tends to be the way that we treat others ourselves. So for example, if someone Mm. was raised by a parent who has a dismissive style, a distancing, fending off, pushing away, punishing bids for closeness in a toddler, say, Mm -hmm. a person then tends to develop avoidant insecure attachment. And then as an adult, tends to operate in that same distancing, dismissive, Mm -hmm. at arm's length Mm -hmm. kind of way. So in this third element of the yes, can you outgrow that? Can you heal that? So you're no longer replicating how your mom or dad or the other kids treated you. And then the fourth element of the yes I think is part of the development of this secure, pardon me, this coherent narrative 
and these reparative experiences in which you kind of come to peace with all that happened with your mom, your dad, your siblings, and your peers. It's not that you don't win sometimes when you pull up certain memories. It's not that you change your clarity about what the facts were that actually happened, but you kind of get to a place of resolution about it. That's a real shift inside. Totally. Any one of those four is good, and the more the better. Well, that's a great framework for starters, Dad. I'm not sure if I've ever heard it even on our podcast like quite brought together like that, and I think that was really well done. Thanks. Yeah, for sure. And I think that one of the things that stands out to me about attachment styles, but really also just like relating to ourselves holistically as full people, is that there's a difference between what our what our tendencies are and what our behavior ends up being. Hmm. And a lot of life is about recognizing and coming to terms with our tendencies and then lowering the influence that those tendencies have on our behavior over time so we can increasingly be at choice. And really what we're talking about here with becoming more securely attached is we're talking about being more at choice. Like ah. so that the long shadow of your childhood experience or your your deep nature, whatever it is, like doesn't have as large an influence over you so that you can make the choices that you want to make in the here and now in your current adult relationships. And I think that one of the big things with attachment styles is recognizing that it can be really hard to fully change an attachment style, but it's really okay to not cover all of that distance and to just get to a point where you're functional and you've worked with your attachment wounds to a level where they're just not as disruptive of your relationships in the here and now. And that's a, an enormous accomplishment. So I just want to hold that up as like a very obtainable goalpost for people and one that is extremely valuable on its own right. I wouldn't say that my attachment wounds were particularly severe. I wouldn't refer to myself as somebody who was like profoundly traumatized or had a had a really anxious attachment style. And even so, I know my tendency is to be anxious. That's my tendency. I'm probably going to die with that tendency and that's okay. But I've kind of come to terms with it and I have an awareness of it so it doesn't affect me as much. Yeah, you're getting at the classic four stages of growth uh, mm. that we've talked about, right? Unconscious incompetence, yeah, conscious yeah. incompetence, conscious competence, and then unconscious competence. In other words, in the beginning, we're just doing our, let's say, avoidant or anxious or otherwise insecure way of relating to others. We don't even realize it. And then we learn about it and we want to stop it, but we can't. It's our habit. We acquired it. We're designed to learn, especially in childhood, from relational experiences that are negative. There you go. Thank you, Mother Nature. Yeah. But then over time, you start to realize that it's almost as if there are two things going on in your mind at the same time. And this is a totally dumb metaphor, but it's as if in reality, you are in the movie Mary Poppins or pick your favorite happy. Okay. You're, it's all fine. But in the background, you're hearing the soundtrack to Jaws, the shark <laughs> in the water. But actually, you're not in the water and there's no shark. But wow, is that soundtrack loud. That's the third stage of growth, where the tendencies still arise, but you understand them more and more, and you don't act on, their, on the basis of them. And then in the fourth stage, unconscious competence. You're just free of them. Yeah, yeah you've just moved on. You know, it's no longer the habit of your heart. You've just really moved on. So that's helpful for people to appreciate. It's a progressive process. Yeah, I think that that's great, Dad. And I, I think part of what I'm kind of pointing to is that it's really okay to have the third stage be the target. Yeah. And particularly with stuff like these very formative experiences that we have and the long shadow that they cast over the rest of our life, that's as far as we can go is to conscious competency. And whether or not we're able to get to unconscious is just about almost the vagaries of fate and the unique experiences that you happen to to go through as a young person. So as you've done this work with people, Dad, have you seen kind of a general process that people go through or kind of a general framework that helps people get to conscious competency here? A key first step is to acknowledge the electric wire fences that bound what people are comfortable with. And 
for people to move into greater intimacy or greater autonomous self-expression or even to operate with other people in a way that enables those other people to have secure attachment with them, there's often an initial fear that, oh, if I step outside of what I've learned, it's going to hurt, I'll mess up, I'm going to be in trouble. It's very poignant. And I find that's one of the very first things we bump into because, for example, as a therapist, I'm sitting there attempting to be someone that a client can securely attach to. And then what starts to happen is that as I be in that way, their tendencies to rest in insecure attachment modes of relating, even though they're painful and they're coming to therapy to change, those tendencies almost get stronger Mm. as a kind of resistance to the subtle gravitational pull for me. There's a defensiveness, yeah. Yeah, to operate in different ways of being. So this is one of the very first things that tends to get surfaced. And it can feel kind of painful, like, oh, as a client, you're failing, or the therapist doesn't think you're doing a good job, or it can seem particularly hard hard at first. But it's really important to accept that. It's understandable. It's understandable. And then you get into it. You get underneath the defense or the inhibition, right? The maintenance of the bars of the cage. And you start to realize, oh, wow, that's why I'm this way. You know, and I think there's a second thing I just want to call out here, a kindness for yourself as a kid, a compassion, a kindness. Of course you did that. Of course you stepped back. Of course you clung, right? Of course you fussed a lot because that was mm-hmm. the only way you got your dad's attention. Whatever it might be, that of courseness. Okay, so I'll just stop right there for those two. Awareness of the defense, the inhibition, the resistance, the fear, and as part of the solvent that can dissolve bricks and mortar (laughs) of those defenses, of really understanding of yourself as a kid with a lot of compassion and kindness. Yeah, and those, those two parts, I think, really directly relate to that coherent narrative which is something that we've talked about on the podcast mm-hmm. many, many times, but I do totally think is is the first step here for a lot of people, just like coming to terms with what happened in the past and understanding and seeing clearly the impact of those events today and the here and now. Yeah. And then from there, when people are talking about this, that's when they often start to turn towards those corrective emotional experiences that I was mentioning in the intro. But I wanted to ask you about this, Dad. Because this is the typical pathway that people lay out. We've got that coherent narrative, kind of step one, all those parts. Mm. And then step two, oh, you just got to have those corrective emotional experiences with people, right? Have more good, positive relational experiences. Take those in. Let them build you up. You will develop more secure attachment paradigms over time. But doesn't this create kind of a catch-22 for people? Because people who are less securely attached are less likely to have positive experiences with other people. And so if they're not having a lot of those positive experiences, how can they take in positive experiences to like heal their attachment wounds? And I'm I'm sure this is not your first time hearing this, so I'm wondering what you would recommend that people do. This is something I've thought really deeply about because okay, it's so great. common and it's so <laughs> yeah. important. The way I look at it, first of all, is that the more you have been let down by other people, the more that healthy social experiences are really a thin soup in your life, the more important it is to look for those nutrients wherever you can find them. It's kind of like the more that you're starving, the more important it is to look for any kind of food. And I think of this in a way at like five levels from mildest to to most intense, Look for the facts of being included in simple ways. You're part of a group. Maybe you experience being in common cause with others to help the planet. Maybe you're part of a team in some way. You're included. You belong. Simple things. Second, feeling seen. Other people are attentive. They're listening to you. They're trying to understand you. They may not be perfectly empathic, but they're, they're trying and maybe succeeding to some extent. Third, appreciated. 
When are you factually respected or chosen or valued? Or when is there gratitude for you? Or when are things about you appreciated and, and honored? Okay. Fourth, liked. Simple forms of friendliness, healthy affection, ordinary kind of banter with other people, you know, messing around, joking. It's not a 10 on the friendship scale, but it's at least a one. Friendliness. And then fifth, loved. When are you factually loved? You can do this for the present. You can also do it for the past. And then it's important to be on your own side to help these facts become feelings. And then when you have moved from the fact to the feeling, really slow down to take it in. This practice that I just described there, Forrest, I would describe this as probably one of the top five healing practices for people I know. Mm. The repeated looking for factual evidence that you're cared about in one true way or another, and then taking it in. And the reason I put this up in the top five loosely of all that I know is because we're so immensely social and our wounding is mainly in relationships on average and our healing is mainly in relationships on average. Mm. And so looking for that healing based on what things that are actually authentically true is really, really important. Finishing, I often bump into a yes but at this point. Yeah, I was just about to ask you about that basically because it's so natural for when you hear a list like that for, I'm just putting myself in the position of somebody yeah. listening to be like, well, I don't feel seen or I don't feel appreciated and so on and so on, yeah. I find that people are nodding along at the logic, but if I could see the thought balloon over their head, their heads would be shaking. No way. Yeah, yeah. I get it. First, unless someone is living in utter social isolation and uh, period, we are routinely surrounded with everyday factual opportunities to feel included and seen and even appreciated. Just in the ordinary life that people have, walking down a street, getting a meal, interacting with other people, social media, those are there. Second, even if in a person's life they're pretty thin, there are things we can do to foster them. And one of the simplest ways to foster them is to rest in a kind of benevolence yourself, mm -hmm. a kind of goodwill, good wishes, being basically benign, looking for the good in others, approaching people in a supportive kind of way, in very simple terms, immediately, other people will, will respond to that, which gives you then opportunities to take in a sense of healthy connection. I find that the issue for most people is not a lack of actual caring toward you. Even though, yeah, it would be good to get more caring coming toward you in its various forms and to find better relationships and all that. I find honestly that the lack is that people don't recognize the caring that's there. Mm -hmm. And they, when they recognize it, they don't feel it. And when they feel it, they don't take it in. And the issue around all that is motivation. Motivation. How do you mean? Yeah. It's getting on your own side mm -hmm. and tipping over to feel that this is the medicine I need. Whether I deserve it or not, it's the medicine I need. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to go after the medicine I need in a motivated kind of way. We'll be right back to the show in just a minute, but first a word from this week's sponsors. Terms like the microbiome have gone mainstream, and it's great that there's more awareness about the importance of gut health and how we can support it by taking a good probiotic. Not all probiotics are created equal, and that's why I'm happy to be partnering with Seed. Seed is proud to be backed by science, lots of science. They collaborated with leading scientists to create their DS01 Daily Symbiotic. It's a broad-spectrum, two-in-one probiotic and prebiotic that includes a proprietary formula of 24 clinically and scientifically studied strains. I take DS01 daily in the morning, and as a guy who has taken a lot of probiotics in his life, one of the things I really appreciated about it is it doesn't have that weird probiotic taste. Trust your gut with Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash beingwell and use code 25beingwell 
to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash beingwell, code 25beingwell. Work often means hours a day sitting in a chair, and research has suggested that prolonged sitting poses all kinds of health risks. One of the best purchases I've made over the last few years is getting a standing desk. It's absolutely transformed my workday, I totally love it, and I got mine from Uplift Desk. So when Uplift reached out recently to sponsor the podcast, I was totally thrilled. If you'd like to try one out, visit upliftdesk.com slash beingwell for 5% off your order. It's really a great product. I use the V2 two-leg configuration for my desk. That's where I work every day and record the podcast from, but they have so many different options for people. Over a million customers have chosen Uplift Desk for their innovative product designs, free 30-day returns, which includes free return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Their pricing is also really competitive, and if you're trying to save some money, you can just buy the legs alone. Go to upliftdesk.com slash beingwell for 5% off your order. That's up, L-I-F-T, desk.com slash beingwell. This episode is brought to you by IQ Bar. I'm always looking for ways to get more protein, and particularly more healthy protein, into my diet, and IQ Bar has been a really good fit for me. Start each day right with IQ Bar's brain and body boosting bars, hydration mixes, and mushroom coffees. And today, our listeners get an exclusive offer of 20% off plus free shipping. Just text being well to 64,000. One of the reasons that the bars have been so great for me is because they're entirely free from gluten, dairy, soy, and artificial sweeteners. And you can refuel smarter with IQ Bar's Ultimate Sampler Pack. That's seven IQ Bars, four IQ Mix Sticks, and four IQ Joe Sticks. And now, our special podcast listeners get 20% off all IQ Bar products, plus you can get free shipping as well. To get your 20% off, just text BEINGWELL, to 64,000. Get your discount. Text being well to 64,000. That's B E I N G W E L L to 64,000. Message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeingWell today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash BeingWell. I'm wondering if this relates, Dad, and you're thinking to something that I've heard you talk about a good bit recently that that has actually made an impact on me, and it's it's kind of your uh, the way that you generally introduce it on a podcast episode is by saying, you know, I'm going to do the crotchety old man shaking the fist uh-huh. at the cloud routine, yeah, you know, the whole thing. But really, you're emphasizing the role of individual effort yeah. over and over again as a as a key step in this whole process. And the way that I've thought about this is that we can do a lot in our life to make certain kinds of experiences less painful for us. And that's a lot of what we're really talking about when we talk about healing attachment wounds or dealing with attachment issues. If you're a more avoidantly attached person, it's about becoming increasingly comfortable in vulnerable relationship with other people. If you're a more anxiously attached person, it's about becoming increasingly comfortable on your own, securely attached to yourself, you might say, knowing that you can deal with your own problems and achieve the things that you want in your life just by yourself. Whatever it is, you know, I'm, I'm simplifying with this. We can do things to make the painful experiences less painful. We can do things to make the positive experiences that 
close, secure relationship feel more positive. But even as we lower the pain and increase the reward value, as it's sometimes referred to in habit formation, there is nonetheless going to be a speed bump for people in this process that will emerge somewhere. And then it becomes about, okay, can you apply enough executive function? Can you apply enough will to get over that speed bump? Because there's always going to be some speed bump. But are you able to apply effort to overcome it? And can we make the speed bump small enough and the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow big enough and all of these different things, but you still got to get over the speed bump? Is that like a, a fair restating of some of the stuff that you've talked about with this, dad? Yes. And the driver fundamentally of sustainable motivation has got to be a kind of allyship with yourself, mm. a kind of loyalty to yourself, determination on your own behalf. Maybe there are warm-hearted qualities in this of friendliness and kindness toward yourself, warm-hearted support of yourself. It's on the basis of this warm-hearted quality of being on your own side, being for yourself, that's really fundamental. I think of it as the pilot light, without which any amount of gas won't matter. On the basis of that, then, it naturally tends to follow to make efforts mm. over time. There is a place for a sort of steely, strong, top-down will that just says, essentially, this sucks. I don't want to do it. I know it's good for me. I'm going to do it. There is a place for that steely determination. But mainly for me, the foundation for this is really, really getting on your own side and honoring the implications. Maybe that's a little bit of my cranky, cranky dad on the lawn thing. It's honoring the implications of being on your own side mm. and going for it. Yeah, I just think about the qualities we respect in others when we go to a restaurant or a plumber comes to our home. Diligence, resolve, determination, you know, including the determination that underlies the, the feeling that, you know, I got wounded in my childhood, things were missing, and I want to help myself here. You know, and then the diligence and resolution gets applied to that. I find it so honorable. I think of a kind of a plucky person. I think of a wounded puppy, you know, <laughs> journeying back home again. There's something just so honorable and kind of noble about someone who's been hurt and didn't get all they needed, picking themselves up and encouraging themselves forward down the road of life. And that's, that's really what I'm talking about. So what I would like to do at this point is break this into two main attachment styles that people are often wrestling with, more anxious, more avoidant, understanding that Fearful exists too and represents about 10 to 15% of the population, but fearful is really a melding of these two styles. So if we deal with each of them individually, we can start to kind of think about what that might look like for somebody who has more of a fearful tendency. For somebody who has more of a anxious style, what have you seen help people with that tendency become more securely attached over time? What's like the, the crux for them? Yeah. Yep. So people with that style are often very good at pulling social supplies from others. The problem is they don't swallow. <laughs> In other words, <laughs> they, they, they have them, but they yeah, don't internalize they the don't experience. They don't consume them. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. So then why? Yeah. And there are different reasons that I find can be very interesting to be, to be aware sure. of. One is the, understandably, the, the child inside thinks that if essentially, if I'm not needy, you will not come through for me. And as soon as you, the caregiver, detect that I'm self-sufficient, you'll abandon me catastrophically. And I will not exist in your mind anymore. And despair and devastation will follow. Understandably. So that's one block. Another one is a kind of habit of reproach. That word reproach mm -hmm. is, is a good word. It's, it's like yeah. a kind of melancholic grievance, kind of, sort of where you just feel uh, let down and you're reproachful. Maybe there's a little anger in it, but it's mostly you let me down and it's like a clinging complaint. And that can become a mode of relating for people. 
It's important to appreciate that so-called insecure attachment, it's a mode of attaching. It's a way of forming relationships. And so there too, you can focus on what are the payoffs? What are the secondary gains in that style of reproach, a clinging complaint, and realize over time that the costs are a lot greater than the benefits. And then you start shifting to a different mode. So I find basically for someone who's in that kind of anxious, insecure, obstructions to internalization of reparative experiences, really key, really Mm -hmm. key. And addressing the terror that they will not exist in the minds of others if they're self-sufficient. Wow, do you think, so that's that's a barrier for people? At a primal level. Huh. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah, this is the kid who had the experience that the parents showed no interest unless the child was upset about something. So the fear being that if I'm not upset about this or if I don't have a, have a basis for complaint and then someone with this style can be motivated to look for a basis for complaint, which unfortunately can have the paradoxical result of actually driving other people away. You know, if you're someone that is very difficult to actually satisfy in a relationship and you're drawn to people who will try to satisfy you and and they're drawn to sometimes people who want to be satisfied, and yet if they ultimately can't succeed at that, if you're endlessly disappointed and, you know, reproachful at the end of the day, oof, after a while they kind of give up and they leave and that's not good at all. So do you mind kind of going back through the things that you said and sort of summarizing for somebody with an anxious style what tends to be really helpful? First off, it can be embarrassing to feel needy Mm. or to be seen as needy. And it's very important to recognize that this is a natural way to be, insecure, anxious, kind of clingy, and there's nothing wrong with you that you're like that in relationships. Really important, because there's often a very fragile sense of self-worth that comes with that particular attachment style. It's a kind of self-worth that tends to be excessively dependent on the feedback of others, while unfortunately the feedback of others is seen as transient, unreliable, always on the bubble and about to pop. Giving yourself the kindness and the stability and the unconditional steadiness of caring and support that you long for in others is really foundational here. Mm-hmm. This is a good thing that I'm talking about. And if you're anxiously insecure attached, you know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Second, when the supplies come, digest them, slow it down take them in, and address your fears about internalization, such as fears that if you are seen as someone who becomes increasingly self-sufficient, someone who is actually gradually internalized, feeling cared about, so that you're no longer so needy, address the fear that you'll be abandoned then, that you will no longer exist in the minds of others. Address that. Also address the extent to which, perhaps, a clinging reproach has become a kind of habit. And even with a certain secondary gain in it, that for some ways it's it's a way to feel strong or better than others to kind of rest in the complaint that they let you down. So when you say, um, I, I'm sorry if I'm drilling down here a little bit, Dad, but, uh, but when you say something like address that, how does one address that? You know, that that's kind of the whole crux of it, right? Because of course the <laughs> the idea is nice, but the 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 what what's the phrase I'm looking for here? The um the proof is in the pudding or yeah, yeah, some yeah. similar whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh and yeah, I'm kind of summarizing what could be for somebody a very legitimate several year journey. Yeah. Of real healing. Totally. And I'm just trying to name the headlines. Yeah. Okay. So Let's suppose that you're afraid at the level of a four-year-old inside or a pre-verbal year-old infant. You're afraid that if you actually become self-sufficient in a relational kind of way, Mm. that you'll be abandoned. Mm. 
Yeah, you will they stop getting a relationship. For, yeah. Yeah, they're only coming to you because you're crying in the corner, for example. Great question. I'm glad you slowed me down here. One, look for people in your life who are actually reliable. They don't have to be perfectly reliable, but they're decent people who are not alarmed by the fact that you have needs and are going to be stably available for you in relationships. Very often what we do in adulthood is we seek out people who will play familiar roles in the scripts we learned in childhood. So we may well seek out people in adulthood who are actually unreliable or who are responsive to a lot of neediness, let's say, but as soon as we seem self-sufficient, they'll just sort of spin out and ignore us. Instead of that, look for people who can become a secure attachment figure for you. Maybe mm -hmm. it's a therapist. Maybe it's a person with whom this is important. You can have a kind of circumscribed relationship that's not a life partner, soulmate kind of relationship. But in the context of that relationship, they're actually securely available. And they're fine with you becoming more self-sufficient yourself. So you can explore what it's actually like, maybe with a neighbor that you go for a walk with, or maybe it's a, somebody at work that you like each other and you do projects together of some kind. You know, you can feel in that relationship where the stakes are mild to moderate, that you can be self-sufficient and you can receive and internalize the sense of being uh, routinely included in their mind without needing to beseech them for that. It's a kind of beseeching, a kind of pleading, kind of a pleading complaint that's sort of at the heart, I think, of a lot of anxious attachment. Mm. You could do that. You can also recognize if you do have a romantic partner that when they tell you that they're okay with you being kind of emotional and demanding and upset about things, that also they're here for you. Really try to let it land. Let it land so you don't feel so untrusting, you know, so uneasy. When you do feel uneasy, in these relationships with reasonably reliable people, ask yourself, is there actually a basis for this uneasiness? And maybe you're overreacting. Yeah, maybe they looked away when you were talking with them. And maybe their eyes glanced over an attractive person on the other side of the restaurant. And maybe that stirred up this feeling inside of being abandoned. But actually, they hadn't abandoned you. They were just mildly distracted for a few seconds, as people are, and still, they're present with you. Really, really notice that. Really notice when people try to repair. You know, part of um, the issue, in a funny kind of way of thinking about it, is that insecure attachment occurs in a context of poor repair by caregivers. Mm -hmm. So when repair is actually good these days, notice it. Let it land. These are some of the things I would suggest to people. Yeah, well, I think that's a great list. And it's interesting that in that you didn't really say a lot about what I sort of would have thought, which is essentially just like becoming more internally resourced in a variety of different ways, more confident on your own, more of a sense of your own agency, your own skillfulness, and so on. But I think that the reason for that was what you said earlier, which is that often the block for that with people with a more anxious style is the fear that if they do that, they will no longer actually get what they need from a relationship, which is just like a really, really interesting kind of far-reaching point. Because normally when people talk about anxious attachment styles, they really emphasize all of the like self-efficacy side of the spectrum without talking about what the actual blocks to those feelings or the development of those skills are. And that's what you were really focusing on here. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of psychoanalysis stuff that's actually deep. And mm -hmm. in part because in their way, Freud and others and people like Melanie Klein and, and the Neo-Freudians and the rest, they were imagining their way into the mind of an infant. Mm -hmm. The infant we all once were. 
And so here I'm kind of drawing on some of that when I'm trying to get at the primal underpinnings of people's odd behavior. Like why do people cling and complain like napalm? I think napalm is gasoline and glue, the combination, more or less. That's what it is, right? It's a clinging complaint. Why do they do that when in fact that inevitable result will be to drive people away? Mm. It's because Mm. it's primal. It's primal. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the anxious attachment style. Then flipping over to the other side of the coin, the avoidant attachment style. And this is generally characterized by somebody who feels like they can take care of their own needs just fine and really is not that interested in other people being a part of that process because other people are fundamentally unreliable. I can deal with my own problems. Why would I want to leave myself open to suffering by relying on somebody else here? Paradoxically, of two useful things to notice if you're avoidantly attached is first, how actually sensitive you probably are to interpersonal experiences. Routinely, I would see clients, and often there's this combination in which you've got someone who's the pursuer and someone the distancer. Distancer, avoidant, pursuer, anxiously insecure. Okay. And the Pursuer routinely will say things like, well, my partner is so cold or uncaring. I think he, it's usually a he, he has Asperger's. I want you to diagnose him with Asperger's, doc. And (laughs) what? Okay, so we start there. And actually, it turns out that the more distancing partner is extremely sensitive interpersonally and really affected by little upsets, and including their partner, being unhappy about this or that with a desire to immediately, because it's so upsetting that their partner is unhappy about this or that, they then want to problem solve and shut down their partner's upset Mm -hmm. to kind of manage the upset inside themselves that resonates with the upset of their partner. And so one, paying attention to how interpersonally sensitive you actually are, which is an interesting reframe that's often quite helpful in relationships. And second, to really honor how important relationships actually are for you. Because if they weren't important, you wouldn't have to distance from them. It's because you care so much that it's so painful to be pushed away. So you try to dial down the caring so it doesn't hurt so much to be pushed away. And then that strategy takes on a life of its own. I think that was an awesome summary of a, of a thing that is just a very, very common pattern in relationships. And then also is just kind of a huge misunderstanding in how we talk about things in the culture with that that paradigm yeah. you were talking about with like, oh, the, the one partner dragging the other into therapy and it's like, he's a stone person. It's because yeah. he doesn't feel anything. Like, well, okay, maybe it looks that way to you. But the question then is like, why is that behavior emerging in that person? Yeah. And sometimes it's because they are a stone person, but more often than not, you're totally right. It's like a defense against vulnerability. Yeah. And that's really what you kind of see over and over. And so emphasizing that part of it, I think is just such a, such a huge key in this. Yeah. It's kind of being honest with yourself if you're the more avoidant person, like how important other people are to you. And I've, I mean, I'm just recalling with some emotion here situations where seemingly very stoic, and I've seen the gender of this flip, and I haven't worked with a lot of same-sex couples, but I imagine there's a kind of similar dynamic that, that's been reported to me by friends of mine you know, who are in same-sex relationships in which the person who seems so stoic and stony just starts to break and fall apart and start crying when they start to actually name out loud how important their partner really is to them. And and I'm just hearing, it's like a little girl or a little boy inside who's admitting in ways that are really scary sometimes how actually important other people are to them. Mm-hmm. So there's this. And so then to be able to do this, uh, you know, takes self-awareness, mindfulness, support for the inquiry. Yeah. All that this other- to me is a huge bucket of tears thing. Like <laughs> as as somebody who, you know, I said earlier, I think that if I have an orientation, I have more of an anxious orientation. That's totally true. But 
I definitely developed aspects of this particular coping strategy around strong yeah. emotions becoming, yeah. and, and that was sort of my retreat into my head, the very top-down process, very logical, very rational, very kind of yeah. like arm's length. I had a friend who used a phrase that was something like, you know, Forrest, my relational style is a smile with a stiff arm. <laughs> you know, it's like there's always that arm's length. You can almost feel the bubble around the person. Yeah. And I kind of had that for a while. They were saying that with regards to themselves, but I was like, yeah, I feel you. Uh, and Because it was sort of a similar thing. And for me, it was a, a very vulnerable process. Like often when people kind of break through that shell and they start to do that emotional unearthing work, it's just there's a lot of emotion involved in it. And that yeah. is a lot of the time, the kind of reparative process. I learned a lot from Masterson. I was in a case mm. conference uh, with a teacher and friend of mine, Carla Clark, to give honor where it's due. That was extremely valuable. And Masterson is really good on avoidant attachment styles. And it helped me to realize that there were major components of that in my own psyche that was really useful to come to terms with. And one of the key insights I got from that work had to do with the notion of optimal distance. Yeah. In which we're orbiting. I'm I'm an optimal distance person. I, I live in the world of optimal distance. All a right. Lot of the time. And yeah. to just but go ahead. Yeah, yeah. My, my version of that smile and the stiff arm is the person who reaches out their hand to shake it while leaning back. Sure. Yeah. 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 So and that's a person who neither fully lands in intimacy nor fully breaks free and escape velocity into full self-expression and thus orbits attachment figures of different kinds. And so the opportunity then for a more avoidantly attached person is to strengthen both of those poles, to become more comfortable with closeness and to become, if you think about the original dismissiveness that was kind of the basis for this, the unlearning and the counterlearning is to realize that other people will tolerate your closeness without punishing bids for closeness or without pushing you away. And it's therefore important to find friends, lovers, mates who are okay with you resting in a kind of closeness with them because if they have an avoidance style, you know, that's going to tend to push you away on the one hand. On the other hand, to become increasingly comfortable with full self-expression, with mm. just being you. Because there too, the avoidantly attached 15-month-old in the strange situation, the classic paradigm in attachment theory that you were talking about, does not express their distress at the parent leaving the room, nor when the parent returns, does the avoidantly attached toddler rush forward to, to hug the parent complaining, you know, as a toddler would appropriately, that the parent left them alone in this scary room, okay? Uh, neither, neither expression authentically of what they really feel, which is that their heart rate is spiking. You know, they check these things out in these scientific paradigms. You know, their heart rate is spiking. They're really stressed, but they don't display any of that. They don't reveal it. Nor do they move into connection. So you want to be able to do both as an avoidantly attached person and look for opportunities on the point I'm making here to express yourself more and more fully in a variety of ways. Maybe this is a natural yes, but that people would come up with when faced with this sort of thing. But the reality is that people are unreliable. And when I say people, I'm also referring to ourselves. We are unreliable. You know, humans are human, they make mistakes. And so there's always going to be an example that a person can point to if they're anxious of the person letting them down, or if they're avoidant, you know, the person being unreliable in some ways, and I can only really truly trust myself. You're always going to have that evidence to point there to out there in the world. You're always going to be able to find an example. What do you think helps people orient less to those examples and look more for the examples where they're actually getting their needs met or just in general, kind of not buy into that internal voice as much over time? It's a fantastic question, and it's very clinically relevant. And I think it has two kinds of answers. The first kind is, I believe that 
it really is possible in an ordinary, stressful, pressured kind of life with imperfect other people to find good enough interactions, kind of like the notion of the good enough parent. You can find good enough interactions with other people such that in those interactions, you can start pushing the boundaries of your learned attachment style. You really can. And it's interesting that in the context of many not being parented, not soulmate, not high stakes, intimate friendships, you can still relax into a kind of ordinary friendliness and rapport and empathy and closeness with other people at work, on your softball team, (laughs) just hanging out with a buddy that can feel perfectly good and be very healing and reparative. Mm -hmm. The other kind of answer gets at something that I've been reflecting on for us while we've been talking here. And it has to do with my firm conviction that innately we're capable of intimate closeness with people on the one hand and natural, authentic, honest, full expression on the other. This is our own deep nature. And there's a place, I think, for working with your mind, shaping it, sculpting it, kind of like we're talking about, repairing inside your own mind. And there's a place, I guess this goes to the fundamental model of growth as like a cart with two wheels following two tracks. And there's a track of gradual development and then there's a track of true nature already. And our true nature is naturally capable biologically of closeness and intimacy. And our true nature is naturally capable, as young children are, of just authentically being themselves. There's a place, I think, for contacting that underlying nature that's available for relationship, rested in the heart, wishing others well, on the one hand, and the place deep inside of just being you, the okayness of being you, and living on the basis of that out into the world. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm not trying to be, I guess, a Pollyanna of sorts about it. I'm, you know, pie in the sky. I really believe this. And I think sometimes the unwitting result of people like me is to draw people excessively into the fix it, repair it, mm-hmm. you know, work mm-hmm. on it, improve it orientation. And there's, there's a lot to be said for just trusting yourself mm-hmm. and giving it a whirl. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think my reflection on this is that for most of the things that we talk about on the podcast, you can find a reason not to do it, almost always. You can find a reason to not trust other people or to not develop self-efficacy or to whatever. You can always find a reason. And so a lot of this comes down to what's the voice inside of you that you're going to listen to and what's the part of you that you're going to allow to have their hands on the wheel that day. Great. I'm reminded of talking to Terry Real when we had our conversation with him. I absolutely love Terry. Terry's great. And he referred to internal parts and then like an IFS framework, you know, younger parts who have these more problematic desires. And he was like, you know, I listen to him. I pat him off the he- on the top of the head and I get their grubby hands off the wheel. I think was his <laughs> line about it. I get their sticky fingers off the wheel of the car if I can. You know, you can sit shotgun, but you can't drive. And, you know, it's a, it's a great little visual, visual metaphor there. Yeah, but also great. I just think it's a really powerful way of, of thinking about this in general. That's fantastic. That's totally true. Today, I had a great time talking with Rick about what we can do to become more securely attached. And I started by offering a little bit of framing around attachment theory. We got into this episode with the assumption that you at least kind of knew the basics of it or maybe had heard of attachment theory in the past and you were familiar with anxious and avoidant attachment styles. And from there, I asked Rick a question that set the stage for the rest of the conversation. 
Can we actually change our attachment styles over time and become more securely attached? And he said, yes, with maybe some caveats associated with it. The truth is that it's really, really hard for a person to fully transform their attachment style. So what we're really focused on are the ways in which our attachment tendencies, our tendencies towards anxiety, or our tendencies towards avoidance maybe, show up in the here and now and affect our relationships in ways that we would rather they not, right? So the question is not so much what are our tendencies, but rather how do we relate to those tendencies? And he introduced a great model, which is kind of the competency model, to think about this, where people transition from unconscious incompetence to conscious incompetence to conscious competence, all the way up to unconscious competence. And a lot of people hold up that unconscious competence as the end of the journey. You know you figured it out when you are just doing the right thing without thinking about it. But when it comes to our psychology, a lot of the time what we're shooting for is not enlightenment, but rather becoming what's known as a normal neurotic. A normal person with some anxious tendencies or some avoidant tendencies or some neurotic tendencies, but one who is able to manage those tendencies and get the most out of life regardless. And I think that framework is just really helpful whenever we tackle these kinds of problems because people can really let the perfect be the enemy of the good here. From there, we went practically into what people can do to become more securely attached over time, and Rick introduced a couple of frameworks that he's seen really helped people. Generally, when people progress towards secure attachment, they go through a series of steps, and the first is that they tend to form a coherent narrative of what happened to them in the past. What happened, why it happened, and what's the impact on them today? And then second, they start to have corrective emotional experiences. And these are the positive relational experiences with other people that essentially become the evidence to us that we don't need to abide by the old rules that our attachment style is saying that we should orient toward. And then third, people who are successful here tend to go out of their way to really take those experiences in and internalize them. And then finally, the fourth step, acting differently. There is a behavioral dimension to all of this. If your tendency is to withdraw, You can do all of these things to make withdrawal less rewarding or make connection less painful, but ultimately there comes a moment where connection is still kind of painful and withdrawal is still looking awfully appealing over there. But man, you just have to exercise the will and get over the speed bump that's in front of you in order to have some of those positive experiences that can hopefully over time lead to better underlying tendencies. And then we basically spent the rest of the episode talking about the practical hows of all of this, and particular the yes but that tends to come up for people during this process, where you give that list to them and they say something like, well, yes, but I have these tendencies, and these tendencies make it really hard for me to have positive emotional experiences with other people. So how can I take in positive emotional experiences that I'm just not having? Or a different kind of yes but. Well, yes, but other people really are unreliable, and I really can't trust them to show up for me in these variety of ways, and I have all of this evidence that when I've done that in the past, it's gone poorly. And the hard part of this is that the person almost always, when they say that, is absolutely right. You are absolutely right. People are unreliable. You are absolutely right. People will let you down. People have not responded to your anxiety well, whatever it is. And then the question really becomes, What voice inside of the mind do you want to ally with? Do you want to ally with that voice? Or do you want to ally with a part of you that believes that there is the potential for growth and change in the future? And that sounds very simple when I put it kind of A-B like that. But the truth is that this is often a very long and involved process for people. It's not obvious. And it's really hard. Then Rick shared a number of things that somebody with a more anxious style can do and somebody with a more avoidant style can do. I just want to flag one of each. For the anxious person, what he really focused on was super interesting to me. It's what's the barrier that they have to becoming more capable, becoming more sturdy, becoming more okay on their own. And that was a really interesting way of framing it to me because most of the time when people talk about this, they focus on oh, just become develop more self-efficacy and uh, become more capable and become more self-reliant. 
but they don't necessarily talk about what the incentive structure might be for a person to not become those things. And what Rick really focused on was how for people with an anxious attachment style, they normally have that style because the only time they got attention was when they were in complaint with their caregiver. And so you need to really fill yourself up and understand that people will still be present for you even when you're not complaining about something. And then for the more avoidant attachment style, what he focused on was how just because somebody is avoidant does not mean that they aren't sensitive. And a lot of the time people become avoidant because they have such a depth of emotional sensitivity to them. And I thought this was a fantastic point, also because it's drawn a bit from my own experience. I really kept people at arm's length emotionally for a huge part of my life because I was really vulnerable to emotional wounding, and I was a really sensitive guy in a lot of different ways. And so you can go through this deliberate process of unearthing that emotion, becoming increasingly comfortable with it when you start to feel it, And to use a phrase that my dad likes a lot, you empty the bucket of tears a spoonful at a time. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode. We covered a lot of ground during this one. If you've been listening for a while and you somehow haven't subscribed to the podcast yet, please hit the subscribe button. It would really help us out. You can also find us on Patreon, patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a few dollars a month, you can support the show and you'll receive a bunch of bonuses in return. Until next time, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.